0: This is The War Room. My name is Jason Sanchez, and our guest today is Colin Gunn. Colin is an award-winning writer, director, and producer of documentary films. He most recently co-directed, wrote, and produced the documentaries Indoctrination, Public Schools, and the Decline of Christianity in America, and Captivated, Finding Freedom in a Media-Captive Culture. He also acted as executive producer of Act Like Men, a titanic lesson in manliness, he recently completed a new feature-length documentary on American healthcare called Wait Till It's Free. Originally from Hamilton, Scotland, Colin lives in Texas with his wife and nine children. Brother, welcome to the war room.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on, Jason. I've been looking forward to talking to you. I think we've been Facebook friends for a while and I've followed a lot of the work you've been doing, particularly with uh, Reconstructionist Radio, and I just I just love it. I think it's all <laughs> this, every single show is fantastic. And it's so fun to see people I know and people I haven't met in person. I think this is sort of the the way it just is with our little network, because there's so many people that we're very close and yeah. that we practically feel like we're when we know we're brothers and sisters, but we're working together on things. But I just know that I, I, I've not met my good friend Nathan Conkey.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: <laughs> but we, we feel like we've, we've work together, you know. And right. We're we're soulmates in the the practical work of reconstruction. Likewise with you, Jason, I just love the work you're doing. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, brother. And likewise with you, uh, I've I've been watching what you've been doing, and it's been uh, tremendous. And I uh, I think it's a beautiful thing, all these documentaries that you've been making. And um, it's the first step in taking the narrative back. And you're using that medium very, uh, very well to the glory of God. So I, I appreciate what you're doing, brother.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, I, you know, documentary films. I, I you know, the, the reason I'm making documentary films is it's one. It's what I can do. You know, I'm I'm a person of limited gifts. You know, I'm, I'm I can't write to save my life. I, <laughs> you know, I, I was one of those kids that just uh, hid out in the art room at school. You know, yeah. <laughs> And and that was the thing I loved, and that was the thing I could do better than other people. And I happen to have found a, a long career since I left school in art related things. And, and it wasn't until you know uh, ten or 12 years ago at 13, maybe. Years ago, I found all oh, documentary films is an excellent way for me to combine my two passions. Number one, art in, in uh, communications. And number two, picking fights with people. My two favorite things, <laughs> you know. And so <laughs> documentary serves a purpose well. And, and you know, we, we believe in, as you have with your podcast, The War Room, that we have a fight on our hands. Yes. And so our, our films, although we have a tactic of being uh, winsome and entertaining, we're also in the fight, and that's why I do what I do. And and I, you know, as I said, I'm limited. guests. I know how to. I know aesthetics, I know how to make movies. I've learned that, and and that's that. This is my contribution <laughs> to yes. the work of reconstruction and to the, the work of the kingdom of God. You know, I really think are I, and hope that our films are, are useful for the Christian community.
0: Amen. And they, and I know they are being used because a lot of people, even myself, when I watched Indoctrination for the first time, uh, I was not a homeschooler, and so. It uh, it it started the, the the train moving in our home to start going that direction, and now we are a homeschooling schooling family. So That's it, great it yeah yeah, it, and, and part of it was because of indoctrination. So I, I thank you for that. It is bearing much fruit. Uh, take us back thirteen years ago. Take us back when you first came to the United States. Maybe it was longer than that. You came from Scotland. You went to you went straight to San Francisco.
1: Well, yeah, I sixteen years I've been in America and had the. Uh, blessing of meeting an American woman uh, and getting engaged. We met in Brooklyn, New York. We were introduced through uh, Pastor Steve Schlissel back in 99. And we quickly got engaged and married in Scotland, but uh, came to America. And it, was, it wasn't it was a dream of mine, but it certainly seemed right, the right thing to do. I had been massively influenced in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, mainly early 90s and onwards by the work of Christian Reconstructionists. So we had the blessing of being the only, probably the only Christian Reconstructionist church in Scotland, and uh, that was through uh, the influence of of, of, uh, an American family coming over Mm. uh, who had gone to uh, Joe Moorcraft's church, and they brought over literature. There was one uh, bookshop, James James Dixon's bookshop in Edinburgh, that carried theonomic work, and we just kind of ate it up, you know, and so I was converted as a teenager in the art room uh, through my art teacher, who was a, an elder in the Free Church of Scotland, and he started giving me really good stuff, which included all of these things about culture and about art. So I was reading Francis Schaeffer about art, I was mm-hmm. reading Rush Dunia on biblical law, became an ardent pro-lifer, and just that that was it. You know, I kind of have, <laughs> haven't changed much <laughs> since then, you know, <laughs> learned a few things more. Uh, but that was, that was it to me, so I came over to America Uh, After uh, you know uh, being being in Scotland all my life, so you know I was twenty five and came over here, and then moved out to San Francisco. That was my first job offer. Uh, uh, As we arrived, I had a job out in uh, Milpitas working for Atari, which was Midway owned by Midway Games at the time, uh, working on arcade machines, believe it mm-hmm. or not, which is, ages me a little bit. It also shows all the bad choices I make in my career that I tend to, when I pick a, an industry, it's usually going to have a demise for soon. So I soon. On the tail little, end. Yeah, in the tail end. The wrong time yeah. to be in it. 20 years, great time to be in it. it was 20 years earlier, i would have been the perfect job. I,
0: I, I remember getting my first Atari console, I think it was 1981, brother. Oh, well, <laughs>
1: well I, I mean, games is very important to me, I won't sidetrack us on that subject, but yeah, I yeah. was a uh, not, a, I'm not a big gamer as a player, but I'm a big defender of what game games mean. So, I was uh, working in the games industry, I couldn't quite get around to saying, Well, what am I doing? I'm making video games, it's not really for the kingdom, and you know, it's pure entertainment as most many, many games are. They don't really have much, uh, you know, didactic content or value or worth, and many of them are harmful. So, I was sort of like, Well, what should I do? And then I've came across documentary filmmaking, and it just it, it fits so well because. I was in San Francisco. We were well, the Bay Area. I was in the East Bay, but our church was uh, a church that was persecuted by the homosexual community in San Francisco, and that had gone on for years. And so we were like, "Oh, this is a great opportunity. I need to make a movie about this." And you know, part of that is that no one had ever told that story about San Francisco. First Church uh, OPC and how they are persecuted by the homosexual community, and also no one was really making media about homosexual marriage. And this is back in you know 2003, 2004, where it had just kicked off. You know, with Mayor Gavin Newsom mm-hmm. writing his edict saying we will be the first city uh, to have homosexual uh, marriage, and uh, that was you know wildly controversial at the time. Now you know we're so far along in the wrong direction. Uh, that first film, Shaky Town. Um, outlined that philosophy. And we had Mark Rush Dooney and a bunch of other uh, great people. And, of course, we told uh, Chuck and Donna McElhenney their story as they fought in the city for uh, the kingdom of God and preserving righteousness and holiness. And they have a book out, uh, which is it's a little bit hard to get, but it's very good when the wicked sees the city. Uh, and they ha- it's just an incredible story. And so we were like, well, you need to put this on film uh, and, and that was our first stab at it. It's not the greatest film in the world. It was sort of our test of can we actually do this, and we were able to do it, and, and I think it's added to uh, the, the Christian community, not just in the sense that we're saying something that most people, we were probably the first in media to talk about homosexual marriage, we were also, we also were able to do something that's unique. And, and one aspect of documentary filmmaking is you actually document. It becomes a historical document. That's the beauty of documentary filmmaking. It's not just we're telling a contemporary story. We're saying back in 2003, 2004, this is what's happening. So when you watch it now, it's a really different film. It's history. Things that's have right. progressed so much. Back in 2003, 2004, the churches marched in the street against homosexual marriage the black churches are out, the Asian churches were out, the Reformed churches mm-hmm. were out, all united against it. Hundreds and thousands of people walking in the street against homosexual marriage. And now, boy, there's, you know, churches that don't want anything to do with it. There's famous pastors that don't want to talk about it. I mean, That's it's right. amazing. It is. We've slid, gone in the wrong direction. So our film stands as history. So I think even though <laughs> Shaky Town is not the best movie in the world in how it's constructed. It's a, a very interesting film.
0: And you know, I it, it, no, it was a very good film. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think it does serve that purpose. I mean, it's very important that we do document our history because the enemy is going to have their history, and they're always going to try to rewrite it according to their uh, perspective. So it's very important to have these documentaries. Um, tell me about uh, the, the Big Yellow Bus and, <laughs> <laughs> and Indoctrination. Tell me about that. Why did you well, decide to make that one?
1: When I, you know, when I come, when you're, I'm an outsider, so I'm an immigrant, I come over to America and, and I think at some point you have a benefit of judgment. You're not the local. And so you maybe see things that other people don't see for Homeschoolers is also very obvious, but the big yellow bus is a symbol. So an outsider like me, we don't have, we've got plenty socialised everything over in Scotland. But the big yellow bus stands out to me as such an amazing symbol, terrible symbol of the public school system. You know, it's sort of like you go to Korea and they're all wearing, you know, blue jumpsuits. So North Korea, you know, mm-hmm. they all it shows a unity, a forced unity. And a standardization. So visual things mean something. I, I like the fact, as an artist, you can say, hey, look, here's a visual that we can use. And that theme, that color, the big yellow bus, and the size of it and scale of it that became part of the the narrative and so mm-hmm. in terms of filmmaking that means it became um you know in films you get uh heroes and anti-heroes you know and the antagonist and the protagonist you know the hero and then the person that's fighting the hero the enemy and so the yellow bus became that antagonist it became that that's that thing that in the story uh represents the public school system and there's a few meaningful ways that that happens it's not forced that you know it's it's just we're using the artistic idea to explain something so you know the 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 public school symbolized by the bus you know bus is plodding along and we're all in the bus that's the whole idea we travel across the country in this big yellow bus but you know the bus breaks down Mm -hmm. and we have this question do we patch it up or you know get rid of it and then (laughs) You know, like all good films, I don't want to spoil the ending, but the yeah, bad guy obviously do gets it in the end. You know, <laughs> so there's a there's a meaningful application, but it's visual and it's interesting how that affects people you know some people don't get it but some people really affect some we had one one woman write to us because we were actually we were kind of scared about it because you know in the violent ending of the film <laughs> that without saying it as the violent ending of the film, people are i were really worried about that as a team you know it's gonna be like well oh, we're they're terrorists or extremists <laughs> and all the rest of it. but people, one woman wrote to us and said it was so significant to me because bad things happened to me on that bus Mm. and we know you and I and everyone that's been in public schools knows some of the things she's talking about so she said bad things happened to me on that bus and when I saw the destruction on that bus I wept and wept because it was so great for me to see that that thing is can be destroyed you know Mm -hmm. and while we're talking about something I do believe in, and that is we should destroy the public school system. There really is a meaningful association between people's lives in their public school system, and all those horrible things that happen, and that big yellow bus that we see in every corner. So we want to recast in people's minds what that big yellow bus means. It's um, an enemy of the kingdom of God. We In, in the film, you have this story that the the timeline the yellow bus goes on along the timeline and all these ideologues jump on the bus and we don't say this in the film it's called the bus that we uh, when we're in production we called it the bus of reprobates (laughs) (laughs) with all these reprobates you know philosopher you know Karl marx and dewey Mm -hmm. and all these horrible guys jump on the bus and it was it's significant for people to understand that concept that when you put your child on that bus that it's not neutral territory is it's very significant territory ideologically mm-hmm. and very harmful territory. Of course, we're heavily influenced by our George our and in his book Messianic Character of American American Education. That's where we're sort of getting the ideas from. Mm-hmm. But you know, we we have a job to do. It's going to be a hard sell for people, just average people, even to read that book. You know, that it's a great classic book. So we're sort of popularists. We take sort of what people understand, what people know. And we, we, we have to entertain them a little bit. We have to engage them. We have to make story work so that they get that same message. So, we, you know, as I said, I'm not the writer. I don't have a lot of unique intellectual capital, but <laughs> we have this ability, I think, rightly, of taking those important works, those ideas that have been formulated um, by smarter people than us, and make them a compelling story so that i think works and that's why documentaries are effective truthfully it's hard to get people to um read a book you know and so mm-hmm. i think what you're doing is is the same as what we're doing media is so important and you, you know you're having all these books that have been out there for a long time but reading them and making them an audiobook is a great thing to do because <laughs> mm-hmm. people are busy they're in their cars they're jogging, whatever, they, they have time c- to consume media, but they don't and have the commitment to read. It's the same for documentaries. People don't have the commitment to sit and read a book about education, especially when they're on the other side of the argument, especially when it's an antagonistic book to their worldview. The documentary, though, can be something you can pass along, kind of like an ideological tract. You can right. say, here, hey, watch this DVD. You know, We think it's good, and, and it has an effect. Maybe not immediately, but visuals stick with people stories stick with people people don't when you read history is you really have to tie you really have to win empathy you really have to win people over and have them attach it in their minds that it's real and affects them and i think that's what we did with indoctrination and our other films we've been able to tell stories that immediately draw people in and make them understand why the story is important to them yeah it was brilliant
0: you know two of the stories in that movie that really stuck to me was the school teacher who ended up uh she either quit or got fired and then right. the, then the principal whatever happened to the principal because I don't think it said that he left or not, but I uh, did he leave? End up leaving? The- yeah, they
1: both left, and and we didn't engineer that. So they, uh, one of them had to plan to leave, and we said, okay, we'll come and film you before and after. Uh, Sarah Laverde was um, great, and she she we met her in our classroom without any idea that she would eventually quit. I think. Partly, our meeting may have influenced it in that the, the conviction of uh, communicating all of the things that she had to communicate and knowing that it was going to be public, I think, made it uh, a, a very clear thing in her mind that that was what she had to do. And our film is directed first at the, uh, uh, the the parents. You know, that's our priority is getting the kids out of the school schools. But on the other side of it, we do see that their, their narrative, where they, they had to commit at some point ideologically, are they going to be. Uh, Christian teachers are they going to work within the system that they know is harmful, and so they rightfully left their their, their profession and and went on to do different things. Uh, Cyril Verde is a a, a at home mom, I think now, mm. and that but that's a wonderful story of of uh, of of liberty to capture that moment of or that desire that change in someone's life really as a gift uh, as a filmmaker. But it communicates a strong message to people. It really does when they watch that film. They have a lot of sympathy for someone like Sarah Lavartier because after all Sarah Laverdier was what you would say is the the reason why a lot of people send Christians send their kids to a public school. Mm-hmm. The reason you know you know these arguments. the reason we use the public schools is our, our, our teachers really nice, our teachers Christian and you and the way we you know, represent uh, her in the film, she comes over is really nice because she is, and she right. comes over as really Christian because she is, and she in many ways she is the perfect that archetypal perfect teacher that Christians are ter- uh, trusting in, and here she's turning around and saying I can't work there anymore, and I think that's a, a fantastic testimony and a consistent world uh, testimony from a biblical worldview that that should speak to a lot of people and has you know it's a, I think it's a fantastic part of the indoctrination film that, that convict, convicts a lot of people, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, more and more I'm hearing uh, public school teachers that are having the same sentiments of wanting to start exiting the state-run system. Uh, we have a, a, a member of the Reconstructionist uh, radio group uh, mm-hmm. named Jacob Pippen, and his wife is a mm-hmm. teacher, and she's talking yeah. about remo- uh, getting out of the school system. What are some things you could tell these teachers that are trying to make the move? And then also those that are saying, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a missionary here. Uh, I'm able to give the gospel to these kids, and I'm able to teach them uh, some Christian morals. What, what would you say to those two kind of teachers?
1: Well, I think you can be a, a missionary of sorts in, in, in the worst circumstances. You could be a prison missionary. <laughs> it doesn't mean I improve of prisons and mm-hmm. everyone that's in prison for every reason they are these days. Um, but uh, but I'd argue against that generally philosophically. I, I don't Buy it most of the time. I think most of them are there because of uh, the paycheck. They're not there as much. <laughs> they're because of getting paid. My argument is generally a dominion argument for, especially for men. Now, for a lot of women that are in the system, and a lot of people we know, you know, there's one thing: is a lot of people don't have an economic choice, and, and so I'm sympathetic towards that, uh, where it's not easy for them to quit. And I say you're gonna have to work your way out of the system. You're either gonna, if you're gonna be a Christian in a public school, you have to. Absolutely mandated by the Word of God, be a Christian teacher. Just like I'm obligated to be a Christian filmmaker, I can't be anything but that. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're going to be a Christian teacher, you have to teach as a Christian and and be consistent with it. And that will either lead you to being being fired or eventually you're forced to leave, like the, the stories in our in our film. Um, I understand the economics of it for a lot of people. They they're in a situation where you know the public school is a, is the one of the biggest employers in any city, any town. And so it's very difficult for people and they, they have particular skills. And the, a lot of pe- teachers are really great people. You know, they ended up teaching because, number one, they love kids. Number two, they're sort of competent, often very competent people and knowledgeable people. And that's where they want to use it. They want to be teachers. My argument is, if is though, you need to be a Christian teacher and you need to do it. The only real way to do that properly is within the free market. Um, not within a, a system that's controlled uh, by the Department of Education on down. So uh, you will either teach consistently and, have, and become uh, come into conflict with that system. Um, but the best option is to just leave and find and find your calling within. And my and I have that same advice, whatever your profession is. Right. You know, although I'd say as a public t- school teacher, as a Christian, you can do a significant amount of harm, one, by compromising your testimony, by uh, keeping shtom about all of the, the, the important things you should be saying. Uh, but number two, there's that story that we sort of have in indoctrination where the teachers trust that, there's, that because that teacher is Christian, now we can trust them now we can and your compromise in that system is a deception i think that's where it hits you know that story with sarah Laverdier. Mm-hmm. there's a, there's that conflict she knows it's, it's she's trusted by the parents but she knows that the system is is antithetical and it's damaging to the kids and even if of course her story even if you're a good Christian teacher it's what happens on the playground with the peers it's what happens when the other teachers who aren't Christian or atheists or feminists or lesbians come over and start influencing your kid and saying horrible things you gotta be aware as a Christian teacher in, in that circumstance that the conflict is is very real the interesting thing about our film is most teachers that see it and I'm a, I was a little bit worried about that when we started showing the film around the country mm-hmm. a lot of teachers come up to me and they're not angry even although I'm saying to them you should probably quit your job you know right. they' most often they will say to me Colin your your film's great it's but it's worse than it's, it's worse than wow. you see in your film. that's the most common thing that teachers say and so uh, you know I, I they they because they see it every day all the things we say in our film the big deception of course for the public schools is the parents think it's something that it's not right. and teachers know a bit more about it. Especially if they're Christian, they're very aware of the problem, and that's why most Christian teachers, Christian teachers, homeschool at a much higher rate uh, than the public than the rest of the population. So they know something that that's right. <laughs> the rest that's of the right. population it <laughs> doesn't quite know yet. You know? Right, right.
0: Have you? I'm sure you've had a lot of pushback as well from this um, documentary. What kind of pushback so, have you had?
1: You know, we don't get people from the other side hating us so much. I mean, we had a few articles on some of the far left sites like Mother Jones and, you know, I think some of my quotes are on, you know, Right Wing Watch and all the rest of it. they're, But they're, you know, valueless sites, in my opinion. They're, they're just for the left, so it's only for the left ranting for their own people. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem for us is actually getting into the church, you know, and the, the challenge for us is always just silence, the, you know, the mute button. the Apathy. The, the, the apathy yeah. that comes from the pulpit, particularly the leadership, you know, a common story that we have. So when we get invited to a church, I always commend the pastor and say, like, you know, you invited us. We we can't get into church. My own church, uh, the churches I have been a members of have never shown any of my films. You know, I we've just been completely marginalized. We tried to get our "Wait Till It's Free" healthcare film. We did a tour of Wisconsin. We wrote to all the OPCs. We get no responses. We get mm. A couple of responses, several in the negative, and then one. You know, just it went nowhere. So we end up showing in Calvary chapels and in, in Baptist churches and the like. Wow. You know, yeah. so the challenge is complete apathy, and and it comes from different reasons. You know, and there's there's the premillennialist problem, obviously, in broad evangelical. although I think our film, that's where it's played the most, those that still have some understanding of, of moral uh, ideas and application of God's law in the evangelical world that still exists to some extent. The hardest part for us is, uh, and most disappointing part is the reform community where they haven't really, except for in, in pockets, Im- embraced the work. We, we, you know, one of the most common things that happens is we we get someone that comes to us and, and they say to us, "We want to show your film in our church," and they think that we have we don't care about licenses. We just want people to show it, hmm. you know. So we don't have a restriction. But they can't, a lot of people come to us anyway and ask, "Can I show your film?" And we say, of course, yes. Uh, and then we'll get another call or email, you know, a week later. And the, the most common story is I asked the leadership and they said no. And the reason they say no, of course, is that it would it'd be divisive or they think it would be divisive in the church. And, and they know that a lot of people in the pews, they either work for the schools, they're leaders in the community, they're on the school board, and there's there's such a, a statism in our, our churches now that it's hard to separate people, uh, the state from the church. You know that when you say things in the church, it, most of the people have status commitments, actual, you mm-hmm. know, dollar amount commitment, commitments. Of course, you know the, the it's the biggest welfare plan in america the, yeah. the government school system the average family evangelical family sitting there in the pews they're getting you know a 12 grand per child you know 34 three kids you know that's a thirty six dollar subsidy mm-hmm. every year and the reason they're using the, the public schools is for that subsidy it helps their lifestyle as well so there's like, the claws are deep <laughs> in in their lives you know so it's really hard for the pastor's are fearful pastors come out and say what they want to say. Now yeah. we help them in that we're the good ones. We come along and I'll say to them, look, we'll take the flag. And I say, look, the indoctrination is the grenade that you throw in the room and leave. You know, you, you just, you can put that media out there and we take a bit of the flag. But uh, honestly, it's, that's the heartbreaking part of it. The, the stumbling block, the difficulty is the, the, the resistance from the church and including all the pastors and elders that, you know, send their kids is a, is, I, to the public school system. I think that's the worst, the worst example. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's, it's a huge struggle.
0: Yeah, I would say that one of the worst enemies that we're facing today is within our own camp. And it has to do with uh, compromising and, and the apathy uh, coming from the pulpits. I mean, these are supposed to be shepherds that are feeding the flock. And instead, they don't want to rock the boat. Uh, let's talk about wait till it's free. Uh, why is healthcare an important and neglected area in much need of reconstruction?
1: Well, it's you know, in terms of if you understand indoctrination, you'll and in, and you if you haven't seen Wait Till It's Free, but if you understand what we did in the indoctrination, you'll understand a little bit about the problem with healthcare. In a real sense, what the problem in in uh, in Wait Till It's Free, or rather indoctrination, is is that we argue there's no neutrality, there's no ethical or philosophical neutrality in education. You have to have a Christian worldview for it to even begin to make sense have to think God's thoughts after him. You have to apply, uh, apply God's word to reality and you know, to understand it. You have to follow the word of God to be able to do what is right and just and good. Healthcare is no different, right? So mm-hmm. when you transition to the, the subject of healthcare, and it's, it's a hard subject for people because people think, oh, you know, part of it, a lot of Americans have just entrusted it to a third party. They've also have trusted for too long the guy in a white coat, you know, so they trust the guy in a white coat, they, they, they trust the local hospital, they completely and implicitly trust that they're going to be okay because they have third party health insurance from their employer. You know, that's great, right. I've got good insurance, I don't even need to think about healthcare. They've done an amazing job, just like with indoctrination where they want you to not think about education and trust your child to it. Well, what we're doing with what they've done with uh, healthcare is very similar. It's not completely socialized like the public school system, but it's very much so. In fact, in healthcare in America, you have kind of get a worse system than socialism. You're wondering, wondering, what's worse than socialism? Well, chronic capitalism is really worse than socialism in one way in that you have a system that's like socialism, where you have mass forced redistribution of wealth, which is what Obamacare effectively is. They force you into so-called private policies, or they go buy something on the exchange. You have to buy. Uh, health insurance off, off their market. Um, that's crony capitalism, so in a sense you lose a lot of your liberties, you have a lot of bureaucracy, you have a lot of government control and mandates, but you also have massive profit-taking as well, um, so it's not just inefficient like socialism. And that Socialism has <clears throat> other significant problems that we don't ha- quite have to the full extent yet, but we will, that we're heading that direction. W- what? the crony capitalism does is it adds that layer of massive profit taking. And I'm not against profit, of course. I'm not against capitalism, but I'm against crony capitalism, this economic system where people are forced to buy insurance policies they don't want or need. That's what Obamacare is about. is essentially forcing people to buy insurance policies that most people intuitively knew weren't of great value, and they were essentially redistributive. They're uh, taking the uh, money from the healthier people and redistribu- redistributing them that fun- those funds to the second elderly and infirm and all the rest of it, which we're fine with if it's done in a Christian context. And it's similar to education that we believe. E- believe education has to be Christian. We would say also say that healthcare has to be Christian as well. So that's the challenge. And wait till it's free. Of course, we're using that phrase. Um, you know, if you think healthcare is unaffordable now, mm-hmm. wait till it's free. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> if, right. if we go that direction, we're going to show you how dangerous that is. Already, we have a lot of the symptoms of free healthcare. But in the next 10, 15, 20 years, it, we're really going to uh, come up against it of this false economy and this deadly economy as they take over healthcare. And That's it right. will be the most dangerous thing. And, and as much as we we worry about the education system for our kids more so we should be worried about our own lives lives of our loved ones and especially the lives of our of our elderly and the unborn what's going to happen under health care that's where the tyranny is going to i think going to be such a significant part of our lives how they're going to implement um, their strategy is going to come through the healthcare system. We need to be aware of that. So that's, what, that's part of what we talk about in, in the movie Wait Till It's Free. We have a book as well uh, that accompanies uh, the, the, the film. Uh, and I think we add a significant amount to the healthcare debate. It's not just about Obamacare, of course. It's about the whole system and the history of healthcare and how we can fix it. It's a very positive film in the sense that we tell you here's how we can actually fix it with, and we give uh, particular examples.
0: Right, and it's really uh, ironic how both of these systems are, are interlinked. You know, you have education and you have healthcare, and I really don't think that the Obama care would have passed if it wouldn't have been for an indoctrinated uh, mass of people that have been trained to just submit to the state, you know, and all that they do. Right.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, state of schools breed statism. That's where we're going to get more of, and and the, the the scary thing about the healthcare system. Is that it's uh, while education obviously takes over ideologically, and it's that's the biggest issue. I would say it's the secondary side of it is health is, is a significant part of of our lives of what how we live and die. And you know the, the interesting thing we point this out in the film is that when you, you and I t- use the word healthcare we're thinking you know broken legs heart attacks and things like that things that might happen to us that we would need fixed you know that's what we generally think of healthcare that's not at all what the status thinks when they're talking about healthcare they believe it's a completely expansive totalitarian Things so when they're talking about healthcare, they're thinking you know sex changes, abortion rights, all the rest of it. I mean, there's there's a ton of ideological things that are going to come through that system, and ultimately, as we talk about in the film, it's going to lead to involuntary euthanasia. Tactically, when you have statist healthcare, that's the the only end game. The only result will be involuntary euthanasia. Partly because socialism never works; you run out of other people's money. So you end up on a dead end, and, and uh, the famous uh, economist Max uh, Gammon talked about the National Health Service and call it he called it the you know, huge black hole, <laughs> and it is, it's a huge black hole in the British economy that just takes more and more money, and just it, there's there's no end amount of money that you can put into it, and it will not improve, because there's no uh, me- price mechanism at all within the system, there's no service that it actually provides for a consumer, it's all bureaucrats. It's the biggest employer, so it's just mm-hmm. this big mess. And the result of that is, you know, huge inefficiencies and waste. But the sad part of that is they have all the money for the wrong thing. They use the money for all the wrong things, so you end up with free abortion paid for by the government. But when you take grandma into the hospital, they they, they don't care, you know. So mm-hmm. they ha- you have an economic problem they can't fix. So it, hence they lean in towards involuntary euthanasia. And that's the other ethical side of it you can't have a the, the healthcare system we had in the uk was was primarily christian it was just like over here it was very much charitable so you had catholic hospitals and protestant presbyterian hospitals and baptist hospitals and they provide the the care for the poor which is something we really do advocate as christians we do believe in free health care to those in need not free health care for everyone because that's a bad that, that economy will never work it's collectivist socialism but there's an involunt uh, sorry, rather a voluntary type of collectivism that's legitimate uh, that we would say is, is the right thing to do, where you, you know, maybe share a pool, like with Samaritan Ministries or other other examples, and then give charity to those in, in genuine need. The problem with uh, socialized medicine, you don't have that, you don't have the ethics to deal with all the problems that come from your bad economics, so what are they going to do? Well, grandma's going to be the worst off, The the infirm, you know, the handicapped child that... You know, would probably maybe survive in the womb if you gave it the right treatment. Well, they've got no incentive. All of their incentives are political. And if you trust healthcare to the government, its incentives aren't to give the best healthcare anymore. It's to serve its own political ends. That's yeah. one of the most dangerous things about healthcare. So I don't think it will reform people or even some reconstructionists or any of us really know. Uh, I'm not being a prophet. I don't I'm not predicting anything, but I'm saying that. In our lifetimes, I think we're going to see the if the, if the expansion of the state and healthcare continues the way it's going, it's going to be the most dangerous thing in our country. And we need to have our own reconstructionist alternative, our own Christian alternative.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it truly is antithetical to the biblical standard that we see. We're supposed to be taking care of the widows and the orphans, but instead we have death panels for the widows as they age. And then we're, we're slaughtering our, our, our unborn, you know, at the count of 60 million to date. And it's gonna get it's, worse and worse and worse the way this goes and, and not only through surgical abortions and chemical abortions, but through um, abortive fashions. So
1: Well yeah, I mean Obamacare, that was the big message, you know, that was the big fight with with Hobby Lobby. And they sorta of won, you know, they won their case. They didn't I don't think they won ideologically and they didn't argue uh for enough, in my mm-hmm. opinion, which should be the problem with a lot of the Republicans, and, and you have to understand that the Republican Party is not an ally on this fight. Generally speaking, they might when they say, "I'm going, we're going to repeal Obamacare." I I say, "Great," but what what then? <laughs> you know, the Republican Party. And so-called conservatives have been a, a significant part of our problem in our country. Mm-hmm. And Christians have had this alliance, this dangerous alliance with them uh, uh, to their detriment. The Obamacare is essentially a conservative-ish idea that was dreamt up within, you know, the Heritage Foundation. And they applied the idea of forcing people to buy insurance. That was the so-called conservative solution uh, against Care in the 90s. That's the kind of thing that conservatives come up with. <laughs> the right. reconstructionists—we have a completely different worldview. Just like with education, it's more radical, but it's right. Mm-hmm. We believe that we should not have public schooling. We we should leave it to the family. That's sphere sovereignty. That responsibility is theirs, and they can you know hire people to do it, but they are in control of it. Healthcare is very much the same. Right, it's a family responsibility. There's some church responsibility there in taking care, of, being charitable, and all the rest of it, but primarily. Grandma is ours. We need to take care of her. It, it, when it becomes down, when you narrow it down to the specific needs of what healthcare truly is, it's not expensive at all. It's only expensive because the way we've decided to do it in America, and it's a, it's becoming, it will become a very dangerous system. Just like the VA is a very dangerous thing for veterans, as yeah. we all know, because that's our, that's your NHS over here, right? That's right. And so that's that's the. I think it's a big story. Uh, our film, I think, is unique. There's not a lot of films. We, we get played really well in the libertarian circles with "Wait Till It's Free." We've talked talked a lot of Tea Party events, but you know, libertarians love it. We we showed it the um, you know to doctors and and a lot of uh, liberty-loving doctors see our argument because it aligns with what they want, which is eradicating uh, the control of the state within healthcare. And there's stories in the film that a lot of people won't know. You know, when we think of healthcare, we're not, we're patients, we're not doctors. The the amazing thing with that, when I started Wait Till It's Free, is I started with a kind of patient centric perspective because that's kind of all I had. But when I got into it, I I, I started to develop a significant uh, sympathy for the medical professionals in this country, that they are just being destroyed and their whole profession is being pulled apart. By government, And to the point that they control almost every decision, they question every decision, and they make it making it more and more uh, difficult uh, to practice uh, legitimate health care in America. And so to the point that I think we're going to see a split as, as just as much as we've seen the blessing on the development of the homeschool movement in America that was born, you know, 40, 50 years ago, but now is, is bringing, bearing real fruit. We need the exact same thing to happen in healthcare, the split where Christians start to dedicate to a separate, health, a separate healthcare system, and we stop using their hospitals and their doctors and their medicine, we start developing our own, and eventually they are going to be knocking on our door, and we're going to be administering healthcare to them because we're going to have the ethical caring standards, whereas the public healthcare system will have no standards, we'll have unbiblical standards and dangerous standards. And and, and that's what we've seen in education. We, we'll see a repeat of that in healthcare, Lord willing, as we start to take dominion in that sphere. And it's not easy because, you know, it, beca- I'm not to me- become a medical professional. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not my thing. We need to be able to find these homeschoolers and educate them and have this system happen. It can't happen overnight, but it, it really is a priority. To have a Christian health care system, that, that's what we need to be yeah.
0: looking at. Yeah, you're right. And like you said, the Republicans are not our allies. These guys are just the other side of the coin. And uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to beat something with nothing. And, <laughs> and, and that can't be done. So uh, there's, there was one example in your film, um, Wait Till It's Free. It was a female doctor. Uh, yeah. when, I, when I heard her story and the way she practiced medicine, I said, you know what? That's the key. You know, downsize it. Be uh, um, charitable to 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 your patients. Know who your patients are. Uh, talk a little bit about her story.
1: Right. So uh, we had a, um, a a doctor, and she um, she provided uh, you know a, a family care. So she's a you know, family practitioner, and so you know, you know general uh, practice. And she operates without uh, insurance. So she or do, you know she doesn't work with any insurance companies. And what that, or she doesn't work with the government as well. So she's get both sides of the equation. <laughs> no third party whatsoever. And what that means is people have to pay. Her, you know, which is the way things used to be. <laughs> you know, you go to the doctor and you would pay a reasonable fee. You know, when you go to the doctor now, you're paying an unreasonable fee. So you, you know, you if you have insurance you know, they'll say, okay, let's see your insurance card and RS That visit to the doctor can cost, you know, $300, $400 for that 15 minutes that he sees you. That's not good value. The reason is a lot of that money gets siphoned off to the bureaucracy itself. That doctor, if you go in a doctor's office, you'll see there'll be sometimes three people sitting there just shoveling uh, files around, you know. Mm -hmm. And the bureaucracy that exists in that local practice is even expensive. You have to often, right, these doctors have to have uh, a staff just to deal with all the coding. You know, we talked to a doctor, you know, uh, part of the problem isn't him, uh, The you know, the stress of the job and uh, with his inattentiveness. It's the fact that he's having to find out exactly what's wrong so he can get the coding right, so that he can get paid down the line. If you eliminate all of that sort of stuff, all the craziness of the third party, you end up with a, a, a real fresh relationship and a real healthy relationship where you just pay for a service and they administer the service. And that's the beauty of it. Um, so uh, in, in the film, that story allows uh, people to come in. And, and you, what we found, and this, this is really interesting, w- when she started that clinic, you had she had people, and she told us a story, she would have people that would qualify easily for Medicaid or Medicare. And instead of getting something for free at the clinic down the road where they would you know, pull a tab with a number on it and they would wait in line and then they would be treated like garbage when they saw the doctor and the person wouldn't know them or care about them and they give them medicine and all the rest. They may get treatment, but they wouldn't get what we're getting in this as we represent in our film where the person goes in and, and they ask for a service, they uh, pay the money and they get a, a caring Christian uh, medical service provided to them. Um, as a consumer, and so you get these people that are able to uh, would are not wealthy by any means. Many of them immigrants would rather come to get that paid service. Um, you know, a lot of stories of, of immigrants. You know, sometimes illegal. They would rather go and pay for a service, partly for protection from the state, but also. Because they value good service, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. They mm-hmm. they would rather do that than go to the state, you know? And that that's a wise thing to do. Yeah. So you go to the state, as you know, you go to the big hospitals, you know, you the you'll both start asking you about immunization. They'll even ask you, you know, your kids, does your parent your parents own guns? You know, my wife has been asked, and we've taken the been in for delivering births while she's in labor. The stupid nurse is asking her oh, did you, are you, you know, in a situation of domestic violence, you know, things like <laughs> that. I'm standing there, you know. And, uh, you know, th- ridiculous things that the state has sort of implemented, the, you know, bureaucracy you're up against. And th- these are circumstances that, that don't exist in a free market wouldn't exist in a free market. Right. So when you see it, and we, we have another story in Oklahoma where there's another hospital where they, they do surgery, and that's your high end, you know, so this isn't just a doctor's visit to get advice or medication. High-end surgery, when it's done in the free market, and they don't accept insurance, you just pay cash, it's massively less than than what it is in a, a local, the local hospitals, because the local hospitals are gouging, they're working through the third-party pay system, they have massive, massive overheads, they have executives driving Mercedes and flying about in jets, whereas if you get rid of all that third-party pay nonsense, it starts to make a whole lot of sense, and healthcare is relatively simple and affordable if we followed a biblical model, which is a free market healthcare system.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's just a b- another big dis- redistribution of wealth. Uh, let's talk about Captivated. That movie, that that documentary, uh, that was another one that blew my mind. We we sat down with the whole family and watched it. You know, I got some older sons, and uh, they they enjoy their not Atari anymore, but uh, they enjoy their <laughs> video games and uh, and their screen time. And and you know what, uh, it, it is a tool that we can use for the glory of God and. And social media has been a great tool that we've, you know, gotten to know of different brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, but it can also be something that becomes addictive and takes over uh, your life. And, you know, um, that's one thing I've had to check myself on, uh, you know, after watching that video uh, recently. And I, and I, and I want to thank you again for making that one because uh, it has put some things into perspective in my life and our family's life as well. So. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a constant thing for for everybody. I mean, I don't think it will go away in our lifetime. We've been that become this media generation. Um, the generation that's uh, just coming up, it doesn't know anything but access to media through screens. Um, we have to. There's two sides to media. The first one, which I think we often understand easier in the Christian community, is content. We don't like bad content. Keep stay away from bad content. We kind of get that. The other side of it is the overconsumption aspect of it and how much media impacts our life to the negative if we overconsume it. And it's just a simple message of stewardship. We're not saying anything necessarily groundbreaking in that film because we all know... Aspects of it that we we consume too much, and we do need to be very careful with the amount of media that we consume uh, and the impact that it has on on us. You know, there's there's very simple things that we know. You know, Facebook and how that's a changed our lives and our attitudes to towards uh, you know the, the our, you know the the relationship we have with our friends, for example. You know, how we didn't in the 90s we didn't have a way to know what all of our friends were doing all of the time. <laughs> that's <laughs> right? right. So you, you kind of just went on with your life. Our we have this new generation doesn't know that, They've all, and it's causing a lot of problems, you know. And and we have to be careful stewards of the blessings that God has given, given us. So I think all of these things are are blessings. I think virtual reality was coming down the line is the will be a significant blessing if we're careful stewards over it. And so our film's a simple uh film, just giving that message of be careful what. But here's areas where there's there's an impact, and here's some of the ideas of how to deal with that, in, in, in engaging in real world things, um, disengaging from media if you can, uh, it to to uh, you know just give yourself a break from it, because uh, overconsumption, especially with youth. Uh, leads to leads to problems in their lives. There's no doubt about it. That um, some of the things that they're trying to correct with medication really, in my mind, could be solved from uh, being released from this. Um, this I don't like to use the term addiction, but you know the term this uh, uh, almost gluttony of media where there's uh, there's it's there's so much of it. That the, the their kids are over consuming and getting burned out on it mm-hmm. and, and confused by it as well. So there's that's really what the the film's about. So it's an interesting, unique film. I, mean, I always joke when I talk about a film that I made a film that's primarily about telling people not to watch films. <laughs> you know? But our yeah. message really is: go watch the good stuff, you know. Yeah. And play the good games. Uh, you know, be be go to the good websites, but limit it. You know, be right. careful. You just if 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 you're and you'll know it in your life. And it's not that we say there's any trick to this, and, the, and it, people are more righteous if they don't have cable television, or people are more righteous if they if they don't watch movies and stuff. I don't believe that. I think there's, it, but there has to be some. Uh, there has to be a warning to the church on how this can impact your life. So that was a film that we made with Philip Telfer. He runs that media organization, uh, Media Talk One Hundred and One, and that's his focus. But I was delighted to come in and help direct this film. And uh, make another film. I think's really helpful for the Christian community.
0: Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, the key is moderation. I mean, in everything right. in life, right? And uh, and even even let's go to, to, to some areas that don't have screens. I mean, you go to the schemes in Scotland or the ghettos here in America.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: those kids, they're out, they're outside, you know, going fist to cuffs. They don't have no, they don't have TVs. They don't have Game Boys. They don't have none of that stuff. But right. but sinful depraved man will find a way to to, to, to entertain their, their sinful depravity. Uh, let's talk about your homeland, Scotland, and the schemes and and. Uh, Absolutely. Let's, let's talk yeah. about it.
1: That was one of my favorite subjects. Talking about it. it's funny when I go over to Scotland. I I talk about America all the time. Everyone wants to know about America. <laughs> <America's> <laughs> America. You know, it's good to talk about Scotland. I you know love my homeland. Even though I've chosen to be an American, I'm an American citizen now, and I've lived here for sixteen years and and, and love it here. And it was already sold ideologically on American values in a way, although I would argue that a lot of those values are Scottish values, you know, the impact of the, of Scotland and its culture on America is so significant, you know, and you've, you've heard of the... The uh, Presbyterian influence on the Revolutionary War—that's a common understanding of how uh, things developed—and it wasn't just a dislike of the English; it was an understanding of of how government of governmental limits of authority. And the Scots very much understood that because we've been fighting for our own freedom for years. And so, Scotland is a land I really love, and my goal is to sort of bring back some of the liberty that we understand over here, because that's what impacted me as a. a a non-Christian being converted as a teen to Christianity uh, and being influenced heavily by American writers like R.G. Rushdooney and, you know, I was reading Calcedon Report and Credenda Agenda and then, you know, Schaefer and, you know, then the Westminster, some of the Westminster guys, you know. I was heavily impacted by American ideas and writing and Gary North, you know, was Mm -hmm. one of those guys. So all these guys are Americans. So we had to do a little bit of You know, manipulation in our own minds of application to British society (laughs) over there, Scottish society, because it's a very different world in many ways. So, um, my goal is to continue that work because I benefited from it, but I want to continue bringing that idea of reconstruction to my homeland of Scotland. I love Scotland. We have a huge history that needs to be revived. And in a sense, I believe that covenantally we had a history that needs to be uh, we need to repent to get back to where we were and we have that history to repent to in a sense In that we had this strong church that had a history of reformation of of dealing with uh, significant problems in the church like th- during the reformation and then understanding the role of the state through the covenanters and then later on further understanding you know limited government through ideas that were enlightenment ideas but i would argue they were progressions also of Christian uh, thought although I think the 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 skewed the wrong direction eventually through natural law but we they understood ideas of liberty in Scotland and personal responsibility that made Scotland very influential in in America and the world and so the church itself, also had an understanding of welfare, so you guys, uh, you know, like Thomas Chalmers would be a great churchman who wasn't perfect, you know, had some weird ideas that were typically 1800s, but also uh, understood uh, the importance of the work of the church, and that the the church should be responsible for welfare and charity rather than the state, Uh, and that was during the Industrial Revolution. So what we want to do is bring back ideas and influence from the American side where it's a little bit easier, and we have a liberty movement, and we have Christian Reconstruction. <laughs> we want to bring all of that over to Scotland. So that's what we've, we've set up an organization called laldi.org. Uh, uh, and that's kind of a weird uh, you know, phrase for a lot of people. A lot of people don't know what laldi is. But laldi is a Scottish word meaning to sing or do proudly with great gusto. So mm-hmm. the phrase is you would give give it laldi. And so we've got three phrases that we want to start using over in Scotland, and that is give it laldi for the Lord. And give it loudly for liberty, and give it loudly for life. So there's three aspects of this. It's a new strategy that we're developing. I'm developing for Scotland, so mm-hmm. that we start to be talking on these themes. Americans don't realise that they take it for granted, <laughs> and you know you, get, you don't realise how good it is here in a lot of ways. Uh, in Scotland, abortion isn't mentioned. So when the state controls the media and the, the, the people are, are destroyed by the public school system and destroyed by welfare, things like uh, the abortion issue just get buried so that you know, welfare becomes a priority. The NHS is the big talking point when it comes to election time. Abortion isn't even considered, even by the Conservative Party. The Conservative mm-hmm. Party is, wouldn't even be considered conservative by our standards. And so there is not yet a significant libertarian movement over there, and we want to have a big impact by being Christians and Reconstructionists in that sphere. And I think we're, we have the opportunity for success. We have a country that is in real political uncertainty right now, and they're looking for something, and they're looking for it through Scottish independence. So we've gone from a, a country that has changed its political parties, that's what's amazing about Scotland, it's gone from being a Labour stronghold to a Scottish nationalist stronghold. So they went nationalist, still socialist, but they went a significant change. They voted out parties, you know, Mm -hmm. they voted out a whole party. And so the Labour Party just destroyed in Scotland. And we're transitioning to the nationalist position, which I think is happening here in a lot of ways in America in the wrong sense. And I hope that we can, if they get a message of liberty, which they're not getting, there is a libertarian party over there, but small and growing. I think we have an opportunity to do good things over there there's a, the church as well is learning a few things there's you're starting to see homeschooling pastors you're starting to see pe- all these ideas coming over from america that seem weird very very weird to scottish mm-hmm. people H- carrying a gun very very weird to scottish people they don't like it at all even although you could buy a gun in the store in the 70s they don't know that they've forgotten mm-hmm. that already but they, they this is what we want to see we want to revive what is our history you know those ideals that we used to hold to are the things that we've just been brainwashed out of our culture. So every TV show, uh, you know, every news article, everything that the public media presents, there's no mention of the close history that we had, both the reformation, the great characters like John Knox and Rutherford and all these guys. There's, there's people that that, the Scottish people just don't know any of that. So we're making a documentary. It's going to be called Scot free, it's going to talk about freedom, the history of freedom in Scotland, its impact in America, and we've already shot it. And we're we're going back over shit a little bit more in July. Uh, we're going over with landmark events. Uh, a group that I, I travel with that's uh, Marshall Foster, Bill Potter, and a bunch of Americans that want to go. <laughs> we to be over there uh, having some fun, but we're connecting it uh, to this message of Christianity and liberty. And we hope and we pray that you'll you'll uh, you know uh, pray for that work. Uh, In scotland that scotland's got a long way to go, but it's got a lot a lot to learn from america and the work of American christian reconstructionists and that's that's what we hope to uh, Have that's where we hope to have that impact.
0: It's a it's reciprocal It's a a cycle because we learned from from knox and the reformers and and now we have to send it back and and do it that way So we'll definitely be praying for you brother. And uh, thank you. Yeah (laughs) uh, so the schemes, in, the schemes in Scotland, uh, you know, I've talked to people that they say they go into that context, and the children there, they they have no idea who Jesus Christ is. I mean, it's just it's just a cuss word to them.
1: Right. So, you, I mean, the, truthfully, you're looking at parts of Scotland that will be uh, secular, more so than the ghettos here, you know. And if, you know, you've got segments, poor segments of American culture, white and black, and you've got the splits that we don't have, so we don't have that problem. We have other <laughs> your problems. Sectarian violence and all the rest. H- sectarian hatred is probably the most notable thing of my you know, home country, uh, where you'll have Protestants, so-called Protestants, hating so-called Catholics. <laughs> Neither mm-hmm. of them being truly Protestant or Catholic. And so, in in the the rough areas in Scotland, is, is notable for for having um, for being a working class uh, nation, mostly speaking. It's not totally true, but certainly in the cities uh, there is uh, significant. Uh, amount of po- poverty and welfare, and really, if you're going to look at a culture, unlike even over here, most people will know something of the Lord, something about the Bible. It's in the even in the worst circumstances, in the worst neighborhoods, they'll, they'll, they'll have an inkling. That might change, uh, but over over there, you're looking at, at cultures that they might know s- the sectarian um, aspects of religion, but they they've got no concept of biblical mm-hmm. Christianity and they're kept from it. They're kept from it through the schools and the media, but the British, you know, media that's that's controlled by the government. And the, there's we you know we have worshipped in a, in an area in Glasgow. It's one of the poorest areas in, in, in Great Britain, if not Europe. Even including Eastern Europe, you had a, a part of a city that was just devastated by alcoholism, which is one of the most common problems. In Scotland, and Glasgow in particular, it's just uh, it's the whole city drinks. You know, it's so mm. a whole city is a drink problem. That's what it's like, and uh, it it devastates that culture, that whole area, which had churches in every corner. It, you know, in the eighteen hundreds, there's all these churches sitting there. Some of them are getting knocked down. Some of them just falling down. They're all just sitting there empty, uh, while the the culture is just being destroyed. And so there's such a need, such an apparent need, if you go there for the gospel to to come in and reform uh, the, the people's hearts and the culture. And that, as I said, there's good things that have happened there, and that God has kept that remnant within those areas. So we had this little church in Glasgow, Shettleston, which is in the east end of Glasgow, it's a real rough part of the world. And it had that witness, and it did amazing things. It witnessed to the homosexual community, uh, had uh, you know, dealt with alcoholism, uh, would uh, visit homeless. The homeless did all these amazing things for the gospel, and it's still there. You know, it's never mm-hmm. gonna be. It's never been rich. <laughs> you know, that, maybe that's a way we can also help because the church is struggling over there. As I said, they've got these uh, buildings. Uh, that are 150 years old. That most Americans would cov covet. They have no money to keep mm-hmm. the roof, you know, from leaking and they, they can't pay the pastor, you know, salary. So, so that's what we're wanting to do is bring some of the strength that what you have over here. There's several things you have in America that you, you take for granted, money being a significant part, and a little bit of money can go a long way in Scotland. Um, the, the other part of it is, is you have um, uh, you've you've got a, a, a at least a in most churches, some understanding of conservatism and and better still, Christian reconstruction is being a big part of of the understanding of of aspects of the church that have engaged in that and and understanding how to reform culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other part of it is is just the American spirit as well, which I would say is what the Scottish spirit was, and that's a spirit of optimism and and optimistic eschatology, understanding that uh, Scotland, as big a dump that it is and as socialist as it is, And as oppressive as it is, it has a future. And so Americans can understand that a lot of them, I I do, they have a can-do spirit as well. That's gone a lot, it's diminished in Scotland. There's a sort of, we can't do that, or nothing's ever going to take effect, or nothing's going to happen. Attitude from a lot of people, that we want to counteract that. So taking Americans knowing about Scotland, praying for Scotland, and going over to Scotland, which is a significant part of our plan, bringing Americans over to Scotland to preach and teach, hopefully that that will help as you as you bring all of those things you know to Amen. Scotland to
0: bless it. Amen brother. we're gonna definitely be praying for you and uh, we're at the top of the hour now. Can you tell us uh, how people can get a hold of you, how they can support your ministry and any websites that you want to point to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. so um, my main website is callinggun.com. dot com. Uh, so that's one L and Colin, two ends and Gun, and they can get me through that, so through the contact me through that webpage anytime. Um, and all of our films and books are on that website as well. Uh, our new website for the Scottish work is laldi.org, leld org, and that is where we're focusing on the Scottish issues. So if you want to know all the things that we're doing in Scotland uh, and you want to support the work in Scotland, go there.
0: Right on, brother. You know, we've talked for an hour, and uh, we haven't even talked about the Rangers and the Celtics. No. (laughs) I'm an Aberdeen fan. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, there's a reason providentially why we didn't then. (laughs) Brother, thank you for being on The War Room, and uh, God bless you. Thank you, Jason. It's been great to talk to you. Same here, brother. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by My Soul Among Lions. Why do the nations rage? Constructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of eight distinct podcasts. Starting on Sunday, setting the record straight with pastors Gordon Runyon, Jason Garwood, and Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Mondays, the Post Mill Report with Nathan F. Conkey. Tuesdays, Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Wednesdays, the Hellraiser Report with Scott Allen Bus. Thursdays. The War Room, with Bill Evans and Jason Sanchez. Fridays, Once Dead, where Christians give testimonies of God's grace upon their lives. And Saturdays, Restoring America One County at a Time lectures with Joel McDermott. And our new podcast, No Neutrality, with various contributors. Please don't forget to subscribe to each individual podcast or the reconstructionist radio master feed where you will get all of the content we produce including our free audiobooks don't forget to go to reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator and to partner with us financially may the holy spirit stir you into action for christ and his kingdom